Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. I've grown to deeply love that, that last song we just sang together um, about leaning back into the loving arms of the Father. I love the, the picture it paints in my mind, you know, of leaning back on and being supported by the arms of God. I love how it encourages all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're from. Like Matt said, no matter where we are on this spiritual journey, it encourages us to find our rest and our refuge in him. I love how it says that God is a love like no other. Not that he loves us like no other, although that is true, but that he is a love like no other. That's a truth from scripture that we've talked about a bunch over the last year, that God doesn't just love as an action, he is love in his very identity. I love this song, and I hate to elevate any particular part of it because I think really every line is so good, but there's one section that especially moves me. It's toward the end, and I love that we repeat it over and over because I believe that it is so foundational to who God is and who we were made to be. It's this line right here. Now I can see your love is better than all the others that I've seen. I'm breathing deep of all your goodness, your loving kindness to me. This term, loving kindness, is a biblical word. We actually see it all throughout the scriptures, especially regarding the character of God. One scholar described it like this. He said, loving kindness is God condescending to meet the needs of his creation. I love that. Loving kindness is God condescending to meet the needs of his creation. The late Rachel Held Evans talked at length about the seemingly outlandish but undeniable fact that God condescends to creation. She says, God stoops. From walking with Adam and Eve through the Garden of Eden to traveling with the liberated Hebrew slaves in a pillar of cloud and fire to slipping into flesh and eating, laughing, suffering, healing, weeping, and dying among us as a part of humanity, the God of Scripture stoops and stoops and stoops. At the very heart of the gospel message is the story of a God who stoops to the point of death on a cross, dignified or not, believable or not. Our God is a God perpetually on bended knee, doing everything it takes to convince stubborn and petulant children that they are seen and loved. Loving kindness is an eternal term, not a temporary one. God's loving kindness toward his creation is everlasting. It's not dependent on what we do. It's simply who God is. He is loving kindness. Loving kindness is God keeping his promises even when we break ours. It's him holding up his side of the covenant even when we let our side drop. It's him pursuing us 
relentlessly with his love every single day. Now, if you were here back in August of last year, you know we kicked off something called a year in the greatest commandment. And this simply means that we are taking a year to dive deeply into what Jesus said is of ultimate importance. They asked him, what what is the most important thing? And he said, loving God and loving others. In the fall of this year, we kind of focused in on what it means to love God and really what it means that God loved us first. Then in January, as the calendar turned, we shifted our focus to what it means to love others. But to really understand what it means to love others, we have to understand what it means to love at all. We have to understand what love is. And that's why last week, Pastor John kicked off a new teaching series we're calling What is Love? Now, this series is is grounded in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, one that usually gets referred to as the wedding chapter because it's so often read at weddings. It's from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13. It goes like this. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But as I hope you can see, just kind of by reading through that passage, it's so much bigger than just marriage. That's beautiful, and it's a part of it, but this is a foundational chapter for our entire faith because it explains what love really looks like. Now, for those of you that are more kind of visual learners, I want to explain it like this. So it starts out with God is love. That's what 1 John 4, 8 tells us, right? God is love. Now, this God who is love came down in the flesh in Jesus. So God is love. Jesus is God in the flesh, John 10, 30. Then under that, Jesus said the most important thing is to love God and then love others. So not only is God love, not only did he come down in the form of Jesus, but then when he was here on earth, he said this is the most important thing. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 that we just read tells us exactly what love is and what love looks like. So you can see how foundational this is for every bit of our faith system. It's vitally important passage. And that's why we were working through it so intentionally. So last week, John kicked us off by looking at love being patient. This week, we're talking about how love is kind, which brings me back to the beautiful term we talked about at the beginning, loving kindness. God's loving kindness toward us is is unbelievably good. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I could spend not just this Sunday, but every Sunday, probably till Jesus returns, talking about the depth of his loving kindness toward humanity. But I fear that many of us had made a huge mistake with God's loving kindness. This mistake is natural, and I think it's understandable, but I also want to get across to you that it is severe. This mistake is a big deal, it matters. 
And our mistake is this. We think God's loving kindness toward us is only meant for us. We think God's loving kindness toward us is only meant for us. This is an age-old mistake. The Hebrew people in the Old Testament made it. The religious leaders during the first century of the New Testament made it. And the church today continues to make it. But you see, God's loving kindness toward us was never only meant for us. God's loving kindness is meant to move through us to the world around us. That's what Paul means when he says love is kind. It's not something that we manufacture in and of ourselves. It's the loving kindness of God in us moving through us to the world around us. So with the rest of our time together this morning, I want to talk about how. I want to talk about how we do that, how we allow the loving kindness of God to not just stay in us, to not hoard it for ourselves, but to allow it to move through us to the world around us. How we love people like Jesus loves people. How we are kind like he is kind. And to do that, I want to go back to a story from the life of Jesus that exemplifies his loving kindness, I think, more than any other. It comes from Luke's account of Jesus' life. Jesus is, is kind of early into his ministry of three years. A lot of you know that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, and he ministered for about three years, right? And so this is really early on. In fact, he's probably about a year into his ministry life. He'd only recently just started traveling around with this kind of region uh, with his followers performing miracles and drawing big crowds when he spoke. Now, you may know that Jesus developed quite a rivalry with the religious leaders of the time, these people called Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were known for kind of oppressing and extorting the people, but Jesus came on the scene and he starts spreading this message of God's love and his hope and his radical inclusion for all people. Now, obviously, the Pharisees didn't like this, and eventually, they got so bad that they actually had him illegally arrested and killed for it. But since it's kind of early on, at this point in his ministry, just year one of his three years, this, this rivalry, this animosity with the religious leaders hadn't really gotten to its tipping point yet. They didn't like him a lot, but they were still kind of, especially a few of them, were trying to kind of cozy up to him a little bit, get to know him a little better, right? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of a thing, right? One such Pharisee was a guy named Simon. And the story we're looking at today happens when Simon invites Jesus to a dinner party at his house. Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 7, verse 36. You can open your phones or Bibles, or you can look at the scriptures on the screen with me. That's where we'll be the rest of the time. Luke, chapter 37, starting in verse 36. It goes like this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, that's Simon, he, Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Quite the dinner party, isn't it? Seems like things may have gotten a little out of hand early on here. People are crying, things are being spilled, there's hair everywhere. <coughs> Takes me back to high school a little bit, honestly. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this doesn't really fit our cultural understanding of a dinner party, right? 
The first thing that seems off is that there are these uninvited guests at the party and nobody seems to have like a real problem with it. It's confusing. They're invited guests and then they're uninvited guests. But that actually wasn't out of the ordinary in the first century world. In fact, if you were hosting a dinner party, you hoped uninvited guests would show up. You, you, you even kind of spread the word in the town hoping that some uninvited folks would think it was cool enough to come because banquets like these were public affairs. They didn't sit in chairs like we do today. The invited guests would recline around this low table while the uninvited guests would stand all along the wall and watch and kind of lean in and they would hope to, to hear some interesting piece of conversation from these elites in their community. I brought a picture to show you kind of what it would have looked like. So you can see there the invited guests all around the table. They're reclining, eating, talking. And then you have these uninvited guests all along the wall, listening, even sometimes attending if there was a need that the invited guests had. That's kind of how it worked. It was a great honor to the host and to the invited guests to have people all along the walls. In fact, the more uninvited guests, the more successful and prestigious the party was. But not all uninvited guests were created equal. Having a woman who, quote, lived a sinful life at your party wasn't really a good look for anyone, but especially not for a religious leader like Simon. In other translations, she is called a woman of the city. Some scholars think she was a prostitute. Others think that she was just kind of generally promiscuous. But whatever it was exactly, this woman was a social outcast with a bad reputation. And not only is she here at the party, which would have caused its own kind of minor stir, she walks in the door, she stands against the wall on the outside, the invited guests, and even uninvited guests would have been like, do you know who that is? Do you know what she does? Do you know who she is? Not only that, but she causes quite the scene, right? Weeping, kissing Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair, pouring this expensive jar of perfume on him. You can just feel the awkwardness in the room, right? Invited and uninvited guests alike would have been staring at this woman and at Jesus, totally taken aback as she did these things to him, and, and he didn't stop her. Because you better believe that's what would have been expected of Jesus, that he would have stopped her immediately. They expected him to, to not just stop her, but to, to push her away, to say, get away from me, to yell at her, not to defile him with her sinful lips or touch him with her sinful hands. But he doesn't. Even in this incredibly awkward and culturally inappropriate moment, Jesus is kind to this woman. And it doesn't go over well with his host. Verse 39. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, Pharisee, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Now pause for a second. I don't know if you caught that. Simon says to himself, he, he thinks, this is probably the language here, is like this is an internal dialogue Simon's having. He's like, oh, if, if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't be doing it. And then Jesus answers him out loud. You get that? Isn't that fantastic? Jesus hears Simon's internal dialogue, and he's like, Simon, I hear you thinking over there. And here's what I want to say to you. Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher, he said. I just like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, scripture doesn't have like tone in it. But I can just see Simon be like, yeah, tell me, teacher, you know. You're letting this woman touch you and cry over you and kiss your feet. You got something to tell me? Tell me, teacher. Tell me what you have to say. And Jesus says two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, denarii, quickly for us to understand this, this was about a day's wages. So somebody owed uh, the moneylender 500 days wages, another person owed him 50 days wages. Big difference in between those things. So neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was customary. They walked around outside. It was dirty. It was gross. So when you went into a house, if you remember the story, right, of the Last Supper, Jesus puts the towel on. He starts washing the feet of the disciples. That's what they did every time they ate dinner together. It was reserved for kind of the, the lowest servant in the household, which is what made it such a big deal that Jesus did it, right? But regardless, this happened every single time you had a dinner party. But it didn't happen at Simon's house. Jesus is saying, nobody washed my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. Remember another scripture talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss. Again, culturally, right, you came, you went into a home, you were greeted with a kiss. It was like a handshake or a hug that we have today. He says, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Another cultural thing would have happened. You walked in. Again, you'd been outside. You might smell a little bit. Everybody was like, oh, we're going to eat dinner together. We're going to be in close quarters. So some oil or some perfume kind of went on everybody's head, or you put it kind of around them so that it would kind of enhance the atmosphere of the dinner party. Simon's like, you didn't do that for me. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss greeting when I walked in. You gave me no oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, therefore... I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I want to go back to a, the very beginning of this story when the woman comes in and then Simon has that internal dialogue, that thought. Simon thought Jesus was being kind to this woman because he didn't know who she was. Did you catch that? He said, if, if he only knew who she was, what she was like, what she did. He would never allow her to be as close to him, to touch him, to be around him like this. If Jesus only knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her be around him. But the opposite was actually true. Jesus wasn't kind because he didn't know who she was. He was kind because he knew exactly who she was. Jesus knew her story. He knew what she had walked through. He knew the life she had led. He knew the trauma that she had been through. He knew the things that had been imposed on her as a woman in the first century culture, especially one that didn't have a husband to provide for her, had to make ends meet some other way. He knew the choices that she'd made, good and bad. He knew her. He knew exactly what kind of woman she was. This wouldn't be the last time Jesus was kind to someone that society had deemed unworthy of kindness. 
I love Andy Stanley's definition of kindness. He says, kindness is lending someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Isn't that good? It's lending someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Jesus lent the promiscuous woman his strength. He did not remind her of her weakness, even though everybody else around him did. He lent the woman at the well his strength. He lent Zacchaeus, the tax collector, his strength. He lent the woman caught in adultery his strength. Never reminded any of them of their weakness. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus lent you and me and all of humanity his strength and never once reminded us of our weakness. Not because he didn't know who we were, but because he knew exactly who we are. Jesus was and is kind. Because he's God, yeah, I think that's a part of it, right? Because he's, he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger, yes, a huge part of it to me. But, but to me, that's kind of why he's kind to the whole group of us. Like, like, like the big group of humanity. It's because he's God and because he's gracious. I think he's kind to each of us as individuals a lot of times because he knows us. He knows your story. He knows my story. I think some of the, something that I will never, ever get over about, about Jesus, about Christianity, about the beauty of this God that we follow is that he fully knows us and fully loves us. That's just not available in our world today. There aren't very many places where we are able to be fully and completely known. I mean, every part, every part, the things you've never told anyone. Fully known and yet fully loved. That's who Jesus is. Sometimes I, I can't. I can't believe the scandal of God's grace. It is. It's, it's scandalous. His grace, his forgiveness that he would truly offer to love everyone, no matter who they are or what they've done. I oft, I've often asked myself, how is this possible? And I really, truly think, y'all, I really, truly think it's because God knows every bit of the pain and the brokenness that each of us have walked through in our lives. And the same is true for us. You see, it's easy to throw stones at someone when you don't know their story. It's easy to judge and malign and marginalize people when you have no idea what they have been through. A lot of y'all know that my wife Amy and I were foster parents for two years. We had three little boys in our home during that time. The first one was named Trey. This is Trey. A lot of y'all remember Trey. I miss him too. Amy and I were on our way home from Dallas. We got the call about Trey. We had been licensed for like one business hour at the time. <laughs> and we got the call. He's actually the first kid we ever got a call about. And I remember our case manager said, I think you should probably say no. Like, I just kind of tell a lot of my people, just, just say no. He's got a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of background, a lot of baggage. But he's also just the first call. It's the first call you've gotten. I would just, I would probably say no. But we felt like Jesus was leading us to say yes. So we did. 
CPS dropped Trey off at our home a few hours later. In the months that followed, I began learning more and more about Trey's background. And as I did, I got more and more angry at his mom. I hated her. I couldn't believe that she had subjected Trey to all that he'd been through in his two little years on earth. Half the time, she wouldn't even show up to his visits. He would be disappointed. But even when she did, I would just sit there and I would watch her and I would seethe with anger. I didn't want to see her. I didn't want to speak to her. I didn't want anything to do with her. But about a month into having Trey, something changed. I was on a conference call with CPS for a family team meeting. It was me and the caseworkers, a few CPS supervisors, and then Trey's mom. And they were all in a different town, so I was just calling in. And there was a portion during the meeting where Trey's mom began to share some of her story. See, up until this point, I just knew Trey's story. But then I learned hers. She started using meth when she was 16. Lost both her parents at a really young age. She'd gotten sober and relapsed so many times that she had completely lost count. She lived in poverty, was in and out of prostitution to try and make ends meet. She had her oldest two kids taken away from her in another state. So when she found out that she was pregnant with Trey's brother, she jumped into a car and fled just to have a shot at getting to keep him. I was the only one on the phone, right? Everybody else was in the room in this other town, and I remember having to mute myself so the people on the other line couldn't hear me sobbing. I was sitting in the car outside my old office. And even after the phone call ended, I remember just sitting there like for an hour, just crying. I felt so devastated for her. And even though I didn't know why she'd made some of the choices that she did, and even though I didn't know if she would ever be able to be a healthy parent, I knew that she was trying. I knew that she had trauma and disadvantages that I could not begin to understand. I knew her story now, and there was no going back to hating her anymore. I began to think about her a lot after that. And every time God would bring her to my mind, I would pray for her. And when I was around her, I began to notice little things about how hard she really was trying. Like how she would give us special products for Trey's hair to try to help us out. Or make his favorite meal and bring it to him during a visit. And he would just eat it up. We used to have trouble getting him to eat stuff. And then she would bring, it was scrambled eggs mixed with rice with soy sauce on top and he would just annihilate it. <laughs> I mean, like, like, he wouldn't even breathe. I'd be like, breathe, Trey, breathe. He'd be like, ah. My heart toward her completely changed. Listen, I started being kind to her without even knowing it, without even, like, trying. It wasn't even intentional. I just was kind now because I knew her story 
Some of you, I know, some people are coming to mind as I talk about this in your individual lives. And I think, I kind of sense and feel, some of us, you're starting to get a little upset hearing this. You're thinking, I know what you're trying to do, Zach. You're trying to make me feel bad for other people, so I'll have to be kind to them. And I'm just not ready to do that. You don't know what this person in my life is like. You don't know what they've done. You're trying to get me to learn more about their past and their childhood and their issues so that I'll excuse the things that they're doing. And I'm not going to do that, Zach. I'm not ready to do that. Some of us have no interest in learning someone else's story because we know that if we know their story, we won't be able to hang on to our anger much longer. And we want to be angry. We want to be angry. But listen, that anger is killing you. Way more. Way more than it's killing them. My life dramatically improved when I began to love Trey's mom and not hate her. When I let go of that anger. Because being kind learning people's story, empathy, care, loving others. This is simply the way of Jesus. This is the way God has designed us, you in your humanity. No matter how different we all are, we have been designed as humans, as people, to be kind, to love each other, to give love and to receive love. It's who we are. God has lavished his loving kindness on us, not for us to hoard, don't make that mistake, but so that we can give it away to the people around us. Listen, especially the people who are really struggling. Because hurt people hurt people, right? Hurt people hurt people. And many times the people who seem the least lovable, actually need love the most. This doesn't mean what they're doing is right. It doesn't mean that we don't need to have healthy boundaries. It doesn't mean that we don't need to protect our families. It doesn't mean that how you are feeling even is wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't be hurt and frustrated and upset, but it does mean that you can be kind. That you can be kind because God has poured out his loving kindness on us and he calls us to do the same for others. So, be kind, because everyone has a story. Be kind, because everyone has a story. And if you don't already know someone's story, take some time and get to know it. Listen to them, to their perspective, not because you're just waiting to share your perspective, but because you genuinely care to hear from them. I just want to pause for a second and, and have us do a little exercise. Think about how our world would change if people did this. Think about how different our society, our country would be if people did this. If people were just kind to each other, loving kindness is, is radical. It's countercultural, especially in our world today. We don't lead with kindness for the most part. We lead with outrage. We lead with indignation and anger. 
We lead with 140 characters of vitriol. We're mean. We're mean to each other. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it breaks the heart of God. It breaks the heart of God. I don't care how wrong you think someone is. I don't care how upset they make you. I don't care how much you think they're going to ruin the entire world and our country and the whole thing's going down the drain. I don't care. I don't care what you think about that. You know what I care about? If you're kind to people, I want you to be kind to people. I want you to take the loving kindness that God has so lavishly poured out on you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are on this spiritual journey, and I want you to give it away to people. That's who Jesus was. And that's who he calls us to be. In Paul's letter to the Galatian church, he tells us that we are to fulfill the law of Jesus. That is this greatest commandment we've been talking about, right? To, to love God and to love others. That, that if we want to fulfill the law of Jesus, we will carry each other's burdens. Listen, if you're unaware of people's burdens, you cannot help carry them. If you refuse to empathize with other people, refuse to try to understand what they are going through, you are going to have a really hard time loving others the way Jesus has commanded you to love others. So be kind. Because everyone has a story. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this beautiful passage about what love is. I thank you that we don't have to wonder aimlessly about what love is. I thank you that we don't have to, to take our cues from culture and, and think this is love or this is love or this is love. But explicitly, you have told us in the scriptures what love is, that love is patient, that love is kind. Jesus, I pray that we would take our cues from you and the woman at the party, to the, the woman caught in adultery, to, to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to Peter and James and John and everyone else that you were so kind to. I pray that we would remember and hold on to the kindness that you have lavished on us. That we would not make that classic mistake of thinking it's just for us, hoarding it for ourselves, but that we would be dispensers of your kindness that you would continually fill us up and that we would continually hand it out to the people around us. Help us love people like you love people. Help us to be kind to people like you are kind to people, God, and then help us just take a step back and watch how you transform this world. As people look at us, right, they say something's different about them. Something's different about the way they treat each other, about they re, the way they re, respond to each other on social media, about the way they talk, about the way they act, even when they disagree with me, even when they, they think totally different things about the world than I do, they are kind. God, I pray that would be our reputation as followers of Jesus. Kind, gentle, 
patient and loving. Make us into that by your spirit within us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to end with a time of reflection. In just a second, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, but as soon as we do that and as soon as the band starts, I'm going to walk right over there. See that little sign that says prayer? I'm going to be standing right there. If you were trying to walk through the really difficult task of loving people well, of being kind, if there's someone specifically on your mind or your heart that you want prayer for, for them or even for you, how to be kind to them, I'm going to be right there. I would love, love to pray with you. And the last thing I'm going to say is that if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're just kind of checking out church, checking out faith, I want you to know that God loves you deeply and desperately. That even if you feel like that promiscuous woman, just a mess at the party, that he sees you and that he loves you, not despite who you are, but because of who you are. That he made you, that he knows your story, and that he cares about you. So if you want to talk more about that, if you want to pray with someone, I'm going to be right over there. So you would stand with me. We're going to sing.